We are in Romans 4 and 5. We're taking chapter 4 in two big chunks, and then chapter 5 will spread out over the four Sundays we have in June. Uh, If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, uh, Genesis, the very first book in Scripture, is in the background, both of chapters 4 and 5 here. In Romans 4, Paul puts Abraham before us. In chapter 5, he puts Adam before us. Both of these are Genesis figures. Both of them are progenitors. They are the father, the fathers of us all in their respective ways. And in chapter 4, he gives us what happened to Abraham when Abraham opened himself to God, when he believed God's promise to him that he would father nations, though he was old and without children at the time of that promise. And when you think about oldness, um, the scriptures refer to being full of days, which is a lovely biblical phrasing that emphasizes the experience of long living. Abraham uh, was full of days. He lived to 175 years of age, full of days. Colson and I learned last night Chewbacca was 190 when he met Han Solo. It was fascinating. Chewbacca full of days. Han Solo tells him in the latest movie, you look great for being that old. But in this passage before us, it's the oldness of Abraham that's in view. The limitations of being old, if you will. So we're taking these six weeks in Romans 4 and 5 about why faith matters. Just like we talked about why sin matters in the first three chapters of Romans. In these two chapters, it's why faith matters. We're talking about why the need for faith is as old as humanity, why it goes back to the very beginning, why God's acceptance of a person, and it's still this way, it was this way in the beginning, it's still this way, God's acceptance of a person, it has always been and still is foundationally about binding oneself to God's promise. Five verses here contain the word promise in the text Mark read us, verses 13 to 25, five times. You get promise in each of these verses. The cross and the resurrection of Jesus is our promise hub with God. God justifies us through our faith in in Jesus' death, the accomplishment of his death and his living, again, as it puts it in verse 25, delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. For us, the promise of God revolves around everything God has promised to be for us in Jesus, Abraham's primary descendant. For Abraham, it was that he took God at his word and followed through. But that's belief then and now. There's continuity here. B.C. and A.D. What Abraham did in 2018 B.C., is what we do in 2018 A.D. when we believe the gospel, continuity. We take God at his word concerning cross and resurrection in our case, and we follow through. And the follow through, if I can just make a point off of this, the follow through. We're just going to roll with everything, all right? It's just one of those times. Let me go ahead and take this off. Uh, and I'll just stick right here with the mic, and that'll make it that'll make it easier to do. My bad, guys in the nest. I did not change my battery out, so it's all right. I don't like having that thing on my ear anyway. Can y'all hear me? All right, you with me? It's Memorial Day. You're tired. You're sleepy. You got other plans? Here we are, Romans four. All right, stay with me. 
Follow through is what keeps believing from becoming believism. You've heard of easy believism? The experience of those who think what all this is about is just getting basically your, you know, your, your card punched to heaven, not going to hell. Easy believism is what James confronts in his New Testament letter. You do realize that a lot of people through the centuries have thought there's this fundamental conflict between James and Romans, uh, or James and Paul, I should say, concerning Abraham's faith. But they're each one giving us the other side of the same coin. Neither Paul nor James enabled easy believism. That is, belief without repentance. It's faith without follow-through. It's trying to have the kingdom without the king. It's claiming to know Jesus, but, but no love for him. What we've got in Romans 4 is Abraham's faith is the watershed moment from the past, one of the very few things in the past that matters on into the present, particularly our present before God, like nothing else from the past. And it flows on into our future with Christ. But believing, Abraham's belief and ours, is anything but easy. In fact, faith is full of tension. That's what I want to talk about with this morning, the, the tension in faith, the tension that's, that's in Abraham's story. Now, now, some of you hear me think that and you go, what are you talking about, tension from this passage? Did you not read this passage, Cole, and see all the confidence? Verse 20, for instance, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. What do you mean tension? Isn't faith supposed to be confident like this? But others say... I know what you mean by tension. I felt it as the text was read. And I heard that in verse 20, not just that, but I also heard all these other lines like, in hope he believed against hope. He did not weaken in faith, verse 19. 21, fully convinced God was able to do what he promised. And you think, Abraham was a super believer. And this isn't me. Is there any room for someone who struggles in believing? Looking at Abraham's faith by comparison, is there, is there room for somebody who, who loves the Lord but wonders if the biographical sketch on Abraham as we have it in Romans 4, if this is more or better than I'll ever know, could be a little disappointing a little, or a little depressing in, in comparison. Most of the time, most Christians I know feel like they're just keeping their head above water. Well, chin up here. Because Abraham experienced tension in his faith, even though the emphasis in these verses is on his true belief. Abraham did truly believe, and that was the basis for his acceptance with God. But true believing is not without tension at times. We see this even in Abraham's story. Now, roughly what we've got here is verses 13 to 16 and then verses 17 to 25. Let me just say this about verses 13 to 16 because we're going to come back to the thoughts in verses 13 through 16. We'll come back to them at the, at the end of chapter 5 as well as all through chapter 7. Paul talks a lot about what the Mosaic law was for. Verses 13 to 16 here is part and parcel of a contrast that Paul makes all through Romans, we got into it some a little bit last week, the contrast between God's way with Abraham, who's the father of all who believe, and God's way with Moses, the lawgiver. 
The contrast, putting it as simply as I can, is the covenant God made with Abraham is an I will covenant. That is, it's unconditional. It depends entirely on what God does. It depends entirely on God keeping his word. That's the covenant he made with Abraham. The covenant God made with Israel through Moses is a you must covenant. An I will covenant, a you must covenant. It's conditional, the Mosaic one. It depends entirely on what Israel did. We saw last week in the first half of chapter 4 that the I will precedes the you must. And I don't know why I couldn't put it that simply last week except I was preaching jet lagged. I was returning from a trip to Israel, had a little bit of a head cold. But verses 13 through 16 is hitting this again. It's a contrast familiar made through Romans. Again, we'll get into it, chapter 5, chapter 7, and beyond. But verse 16, why it depends on faith is in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, which is targeting the the Jewish person in particular, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who's the father of us all, Jew and Gentile together. It's making a comprehensive statement of the applicability, the relevance of faith. So the promise to Abraham, Paul makes a lot of hay over that this is before the law. That's important to particularly his, his Jewish reader. The promise is that God gives Abraham land, seed, that is descendants, and blessing forever. The promise to Moses was that Abraham's family, his descendants, must obey God's commandments if it wants to stay on the land. Title to the land was guaranteed, but not possession. The point, though, through the first 16 verses of chapter 4 is that faith is the basis for justification by God, not deeds. God's I will takes precedence over God's you must. And Paul works from this to say that our God provides our justification through Jesus. The I will and the you must is also here. Jesus says, I will take the cross on your behalf. I will rise from it, but you must believe. Now, with that in mind, let's get into the tension. Because many of us, modern-day believers, and ancient believers as well, we feel a tension being the sons and daughters of the father of all who believe, Abraham. It's the tension between confidence and struggle in believing. Paul writes about Abraham. We read it, verse 18. In hope he believed against hope. And the verses following reveal this robust faith that Abraham had. The text emphasizes his oldness when God promised him descendants. The backstory again is in Genesis where the ages are given. There are, one of his ages is given here also in verse 19. But we go back to Genesis and we know he's 75 at the point at which God told him to leave home and go for the home that he didn't know. He's 86 when uh, he fathers Ishmael through Hagar. He's 99 when he's circumcised. That's a key event in Abraham's life, and he's 100 when his son Isaac is born through Sarah, who was herself around 90 years of age. And so at their age, though people back then were living a little longer, again, Abraham got to 175, still Abraham and Sarah were old a long time. 
And as a couple, they'd already dealt, at their age, they'd already dealt with the disappointment of having no children. I don't mean that insensitively when I say they had dealt with it as if age conquers all disappointments, neutralizes all longings. It doesn't. The the longing for a child, in particular, never really leaves most hearts that have felt it. Disappointment remains when that hope goes unfulfilled. What I'm saying is that Abraham and his wife, at the age God met him, made promises to him, sent him his follow-through, thoughts of having a child together for Abraham and Sarah were, well, as verse 18 puts it, it's, it's hope against hope. But God, but God, who, verse 17, gives life to the dead and calls into existence existence the things that do not exist. Verse 19, Abraham considers his own body as good as dead, about a hundred years old, in a reproductive sense. And the same for Sarah. None of you have been to a baby shower for a 90-year-old. But even though we've never seen the like of this, God made a promise to this man, old a long time, that his faith over his fullness of days would bless the whole earth through one ultimate descendant. That's the the blessing part of the promise. So where's the tension? I made a passing reference to Abraham at 86, fathering Ishmael through Sarah's Egyptian servant. What's that about? As you see, you read chapter 4 here in Romans, and you get Paul's, it's so emphatic. He did not weaken in faith. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. He's fully convinced that God will do what he's promised. This is why, verse 22, this is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Full stop. Arms folded. End of faith story, right? And they all lived happily ever after. But the Ishmael, part of the story from Genesis, what does it seem like? Verse 19 says, um, I'm looking for a particular word. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust, it's verse 20, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. And many readers through the centuries have seen that and gone, well, But what about the Ishmael story? What about that part of the story? Scripture doesn't hide it. It's there in the Genesis account. But is Paul hiding it? Is Paul glossing over this in trumpeting Abraham's absolute faith? You go back in Genesis and you see that about a decade after hearing from God, believing the promise, a decade of, according to verse 20, growing strong in faith, giving glory to God. But Abraham and Sarah are thinking about a decade past, we're still not pregnant, not getting any younger. Maybe God means for this to happen through a kind of plan B. And so they make a plan B. Why does Paul say with repeated emphasis that Abraham and hope believed against hope, did not waver, no distrust, didn't weaken, fully convinced, all of these emphatic emphases when the Ishmael part of the story doesn't seem to square with this theology? 
It seems like Abraham struggled somewhere in his believing. Many people have read this, knowing the backstory, and have said, why, why is, how come? And the reality is, Abraham did struggle in his believing. Now hear me out here before you think, I, I hope you wouldn't think this, maybe one or two of you would think that I'm contradicting or correcting Paul. Uh, most of you won't think that, but hear me out why I say this. Abraham struggled as one who was fully convinced. How is that possible? How is it possible to be, verse 21, fully convinced that God was able to do as he had promised and yet struggle? The struggle was not over the what, it was over the how. It was not over what would happen, it was over the means to how that will happen. Even the most confident faith is not without tensions. The Ishmael part of the story says Abraham struggled with the how, the means, how God's promises would be worked out for him, not the what or why of those promises. He struggled with the how, not the what or the why. How will I have descendants when we're old and have never conceived? How will God work this out? Not will he, how will he? He wouldn't have taken a surrogate. I mean, it, it, it seems it was a mistake. But he wouldn't have taken a surrogate if he believed he shouldn't even try to have descendants as if it was going to happen magically. In an odd way, taking Hagar at Sarah's direction to have a child through her is the action of a believer in the promise, a believer who is struggling with, how will I get an heir, not will I? Now, here's, here's a familiar stop-off point for preachers who will say, don't run ahead of God. That's your takeaway from this story, you know. Don't run ahead of God. This is what happens when you run ahead of God, when you don't wait on Him, when you take matters into your own hands. That's not my application for you. I think I know what those who exhort a congregation this way are trying to get at when they take that line that, that we we. We need to cultivate trust in God. We need to not act from anxiety and cause trouble for ourselves when we do. I think those who take this story to that application don't run ahead of God. They recognize a certain kind of panic sets in among God's people when we're up against limitations or, or we don't have good options, but we feel the need to act anyway, and we might act in a way that reconfigures our theology or our morality or our, our reputation. And there's consequences for that, that that linger on sometimes for generations. We do have to learn how to wait for God. Scripture does call us to this, but it's a learning curve. And it's not always clear when or how we should wait on God. I also recognize that we are living in a time in which courage is linked to questioning, not to believing. You do realize this about our, our present cultural moment, that the, the person who questions belief, in particular creedal faith commitments, that person is often considered courageous, struggling with believing, doubting is the height of intellectual experience in our cultural moment. The cultural rewards are all on the side of tossing out the truths that shaped us and and. Starting again from the beginning, 
People don't trust confident belief. Even people in the church don't trust confident belief. It's construed today as fundamentally arrogant. And some people do convey arrogance in their believing, yes. You do realize the firmer you hold your beliefs, the more those beliefs should humble you if you're doing it right. The firmer you hold your beliefs, the more those beliefs should humble you if you're doing it right. Humble you in ways that people can actually experience in relating to you. You never give off the vibe that you're arrogant. But I recognize that some, even some in this room, suspicion, firm belief as, as, as inauthentic. This is a cultural conditioning. We're, we're, the, the vibe we clearly get from, from living in the society is that authentic people live in the questions. Authentic people always have the challenge. Authentic people are courageously trailblazing their own beliefs. And Abraham really wasn't a trailblazer. Last week I called him that, but I take it back. <laughs> because on reflection, as I thought about that, I realized, you know, a trailblazer is, is really blazing the way. They're, they're making something out of nothing, and that's not really what's going on. Abraham is the guy who went first on the way God is still sending us centuries later. It's the same way we come along behind him. The way of faith in what God has promised. And for us, it hubs around Jesus. For Abraham, it hubbed around Jesus. His fathering Ishmael through the servant was the action, no matter how that turned out, it was the action of a believer in the promise of God, not wavering about the promise itself, but struggling over the means to its completion, the means to its fulfillment. And that makes Abraham entirely human. He had how questions, not what questions. And this is why Paul can be emphatic here in this chapter about Abraham's true belief in God's promise. And it doesn't contradict the story as we have it in Genesis. We see in Abraham that even confident faith expresses tensions over the hows and the whens and the wheres and maybe even the whys and the why nots. Confident faith is sure about the what and the who. And that's good. God is there and God will be faithful to what he's revealed here and therefore will be faithful to me. This is something we want to have drilled down in our hearts that God is, is faithful to everything he's promised to be for us in Jesus. And yet... I can be, in the words of verse 21, fully convinced God's able to do what he promises and yet still experience tensions in the meantime. Abraham was told descendants would come. But then he had to wait. He had to wait a while between the, the dreaming and the coming true. He had to wait for those promises to bear out and to bear out specifically through Sarah. Most improbably. Now let's bring this into our context now. What promises remain on our big board with God, if you want to put it in that picture? What promises are still on the big board? There's really only one left. And that is that Abraham's primary descendant, Jesus, will come again. 
This is the main thing we're having to wait on today as people of faith. I'm not into your personal experience. You may be waiting on God and in some matter of your family and, and etc. and so on like that. But the main thing the people of God are having to wait for, as Abraham had to wait for fulfillment of what God promised him, the main thing we're having to wait for is that Jesus will come again. And the meantime is a mean time, often. We're presently inhabiting a meantime gap between our, our dreaming of this and it coming true. But I don't know that the church really dreams of this today. In fact, I think this is a very neglected doctrine. It's a neglected promise. If our faith is developing... If what was said of Abraham in verse 20 is true of us, that we are gaining strength in our believing and giving glory to God, if we're keeping the faith, even through faith struggles, how can we tell? Well, there's a cluster of things that come together in how we can tell. But ultimately, we tell the same way Abraham told. How did Abraham know that he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God? You know that Jesus gave the answer to that? You don't have to turn there, but let me tell you about what happened in John 8. There's an experience of Jesus in John 8 that he's having this dialogue with a crowd and he invokes Abraham. He says that um, before Abraham was, I am. And they just go ballistic on this. How in the world? You're not even 50 years old, they say to him. And you claim to have seen Abraham, to have preexisted before him. And he says this to them. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Abraham was, according to Jesus, Abraham knew enough to know that he was ultimately looking forward to Jesus. Didn't know his name, didn't know his time. But he knew that through you all nations of the earth will be blessed. He knew that that had to have a fulfillment in one particular descendant. And so are we looking forward to Jesus, though Jesus has already come. He's already been here. He's coming again. You know how people will say, if you interact with unbelievers, you'll hear this. Some of you need to interact with unbelievers desperately, by the way. Your faith is so insular. You're around Christians all the time. And it's, and it's, it's not a good look, okay? If you get around unbelievers today, they will say to you at some point, you know, Christians believe some weird things. And you need to say, well, it gets weirder still. Because the next great event for Christians is the Lord coming on a horse in the sky with a sword coming out of his mouth and a big tattoo on his thigh that says, King of kings and Lord of lords. You're looking at me funny. Go look it up. You didn't know that's in Scripture, did you? Revelation 19. And yet when that permeates into your heart, the next great event on God's calendar, it absolutely thrills you. You don't have to tell people that it's not escapism because you know it's not. In fact, to have that as your orientation is to be fully engaged with the moment as we have it now and to see your faith grow in the moment, your confidence in the promises and the goodness of God to you. I stood a couple weeks ago now on the Mount of Olives outside Jerusalem. I was there, in fact, uh, two days after Ascension Thursday, which... uh, if you're kind of a higher church uh, Christian Orthodox uh, circles, you you celebrate the 
the Easter calendar, 40 days after Easter is Ascension Thursday, as it was uh, this particular year. And I reminded the group of this. You remember the Ascension? It's repeated throughout the Gospels. It's in the first chapter of Acts. So it's a really key event. We tend to just kind of read over it, gloss over it, big deal, you know. The ascension is the place where the angel says to these disciples, uh, why do you stand gazing, looking into the heavens? The same Jesus who's been taken from you will come again the same way. You know what that is? That's a promise. That's a promise from God. A promise is still on the big board. We're having to wait for it. But one of the things that faith cultivates in you in the meantime is a longing for that to be fulfilled in your time. The longing of Abraham's lifetime was to see his heir. Jesus said it, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. The longing of our lifetimes is the same thing except it's the second coming. It's the return. The Lord Jesus comes again. The last chapter, there's more about this in Scripture than you realize. The last chapter of Paul's last letter, do you know what was in Paul's heart and on his mind? The, The final words of Paul? I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, listen to how he puts this, but to all who have loved his Appearing. There it is. Paul says, I've kept the faith and I've loved his appearing. And the two are connected in a really beautiful way. There's an English writer named Julian Barnes. I doubt you've read him. He wrote a book on death called Nothing to be Frightened of. I think it came out about a decade ago. Julian Barnes is not a believer. I think he considers himself an atheist. He's a beautiful writer. But in that book, Nothing to be Frightened of, Julian Barnes got a lot of publicity for for using this line in that book. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. If an unbeliever says that, how much more a believer? And yet, for us, it's really not that we miss Jesus, but that we long for him. Our faith cultivates this longing in us, even as it cultivated it in our ancient father, Abraham, who was waiting on that fulfillment in particular. That's how Jesus interprets Abraham. He was waiting on me. He wanted to see me. He rejoiced in seeing my day. He was clad in it. In the larger consideration, this is why faith also matters. It matters, and we tend to focus so much on the the, the faith as the basis of our justification before God, and that's important because that's the bullseye. We have to emphasize this. We must believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ to make our salvation sure, to get to see the man on the horse in the sky. But faith also matters in your day-to-day, in the cultivation of the longings of the justified. What are you longing for? I bet you that the longing behind all of your longings, you long for your kids to be safe, you long for the have more money than month, you long for uh, some uh, dear relative to be saved, the longing behind every longing is for Jesus himself. That's what you really want if you're a faithful person. That is, if you're a person who is following the way of Abraham. Faith 
matters to the cultivation of the longings of the justified. Loving his appearing, as Paul puts it. Which is longed for because it's the only thing that relieves the tensions. These tensions that we feel in believing, for now, it's faith. But the testimony of Scripture is that someday it's sight. You know, the church for now has a lot of issues. We are deeply, deeply formed by the world in ways we don't even realize. I mean, there are people in the church who think they're right about this or that culturally, politically, and they're being formed by the world too. It's just a different format, a different look. The church is so formed by the world in total, in in complete. There's nobody in here that's unaffected by this, including me. And I'm not down on the church for this. It doesn't make me want to quit. Well, most days, okay. I'm not an escapist. It stokes my longing for Jesus' return because it's the church that he comes back for, us. And thus, I'm not going anywhere from the church, even at the church that is most frustrating. When God does a renewing work in and among his people, a lot of you walk around talking about the nation needs revival, and I don't mean, I don't mean this, I'm not in your face when I say, you don't, you don't know what you're talking about. Because what really needs to happen is a renewal of the church. The renewal that happens in the church, the people of God returning to their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The people in the church believing the gospel. Let the church get its own house in order and then we can move out into society. When you say that the church needs renewal... What you're saying is, when God does a renewing work in and among his people, one of the ways we tell is there will be a palpable longing for Jesus appearing. That will come out of us. When that doesn't register for us, when this is not hoped for, it's not the church's best day. I mean, the church actually, when we're longing for that great day, it makes us more faithful in the here and now. Historically, that's been true. We just tend to take the, the groups that have kind of set a date and gone off in some field somewhere and like, you know, line us waiting for the great pumpkin and they get disappointed and they all go home. That's what, that's what millennialism is, is supposed to be. But in, in reality for the church, the church that gets really the longing for the Lord Jesus, that church is productive, that church is engaged, that church is loving its neighbors. Go back and look at Jesus' parables, how many of them connect faith with alertness, with watching for him, more than one. He defines that watchfulness, that alertness for his coming. He defines that as faithfulness. There's other things that go into the definition, but that's that's part of it. Loving is appearing as faithfulness. And his appearing will be the end of faith tensions we have to live with for now, but not always do we have to live with faith tensions. Not always. The faithful long for our faith to be sight. Right now it's faith. And for now, we, like our faith forefather, we grow strong in our faith by giving glory to God. Knowing the return of Christ will be glorying in brilliance. When our faith is healthy, that's what we want. When our faith is faithful, we're longing for the man on the horse in the sky. 
The more glory you give to God, the more elevated you want to see His Son. Nothing is better for our faith than to get Jesus larger in our view. Who He was, what He taught, who He welcomed and gave time to, what He accomplished and why He did. For now, it's faith. Faith subscribes to doctrines, absolutely. Sets sets of belief that we want to hold firmly and we want to hold humbly at the same time. But faith also ascribes glory to Jesus by loving His appearance. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. That's a marvelous thing to think about. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. And then we'll sing. Would you fill your church today, Lord? Would you fill us with that same gladness that Abraham had as he looked out into, beyond himself, the promise of a descendant through whom all the nations would be blessed and we get to count ourselves among those so blessed. Lord, keep us uh, from arrogance or keep us from confidence turning into arrogance, but also uh, stoke a longing in us for the the completion, the cultivation, the, the consummation of our faith in seeing His appearing. Make us love His appearing and to recognize all the good that's in that. Lord, you know that we're sheep, easily led astray, easily battered and bruised, easily distracted and preoccupied. Help us this day to get a new sense, even as Abraham did. The way Jesus interpreted Abraham for us was he rejoiced to hear about my day. He saw it and was glad. 